The account of the ambassador's death is incomplete, misleading, and inaccurate. It is the ultimate goal of forensic science. What can we exclude? What did not happen? What could have happened? And best of all, what did happen? Who fired the weapons which resulted in the ambassador's death? Spent cartridge casings. Is it Russian ammunition? Is it all the same lot number? Why has the DRA refused to allow U.S. government officials to examine weapons? If the guns are gone, there will be markings left on those cartridges. The markings that the gun leaves on them will put them in a classification. It's like seeing a Ford and a Chevy. Why was at least one of the terrorists killed by the DRA authorities while in captivity? I want the bullets from the dead guy at the morgue that you can't account for. I want the bullets from the ambassador and the bullets from the two men. What if the same gun was used to kill that man who wasn't in the room at the time? That tells you a story right there. Why did the DRA assault the room where the ambassador was held? In the final analysis, it doesn't strike me as a true rescue attempt. It's just kill everybody there. There was an intense effort on the part of the Russians and the Afghan communists to withhold and disappear all of that physical evidence. As an investigator, what does that tell you? Culpability. Culpability. According to the Cambridge Dictionary, deserving to be blamed or considered responsible for something bad. The speaker is Luke Haig, the United States preeminent forensics firearms specialist. He sees culpability in the concerted, continuing attempts to cover up the truth about the murder of Ambassador Spike Dubbs on Valentine's Day 1979. In this episode, an extended interview with Luke Haig as we conclude the first phase of our investigation. Early in his 50-year career, Luke ran a police crime lab. Later, he wrote the Bible on shooting scene reconstruction. He's also puzzled out elements of major controversies, including the JFK assassination. Now, we turn to his expertise to help answer the question, who murdered Spike Dubbs? I put to Luke Haig the story so far the steps taken by Soviet officials and their proxies in the Afghan communist regime, committing at least two more murders, planting false stories in the press, accusing the U.S. government of killing its own ambassador, all to hide the truth about what happened 40 years ago at the Hotel Kabul. As we've heard, the Russian-Afghan regime cover-up began with disappearing physical evidence, shell casings, bullet holes, the room itself and everything in it. Spike's embassy staffers were not allowed to photograph it or take measurements. Even the silent witnesses, the bodies of the dead captors, vanished. What does all of this tell one of the best crime investigators in the business? Clearly these individuals recognize the importance of physical evidence and how it can show what did not happen if there's some official account or test that account. And there's a wealth of physical evidence. You've hit upon some of it, but just trajectory information, spent cartridge casings. Is it Russian ammunition? Is it all the same lot number? Bullets and bullet fragments, a bullet that went through a glass window from across the street and then hit one of the deceased Afghanis. That bullet's going to have glass particles in it that are likely to be different in chemistry than the glass in the front doorway that got shattered. In your own casework and analysis, where you find that there's been an intentional effort to destroy or conceal evidence. What does it tell you? Culpability, (laughs) knowledge that physical evidence can reveal the truth. 
It can be as simple as someone defacing the bore of a firearm or the breech face of a firearm to try to make firearms identification uh, impossible. So there's, there's a simple example. Using a uh, pillow as a silencer works. Now there's no gunshot residue on the victim who's, uh, who's been shot, essentially a near contact shot, but you got to get rid of the pillow. But we still have a bullet in the body which may have stuffing or feathers from the pillow embedded in its, in its hollow point cavity or in the nose of the bullet. Even some of that material can be driven into the wound. So it's a partnership at that point. In the last example between the pathologist to recover something that looks a little different in the wound path, get the bullet out, then the firearms examiner is looking at it, and let's hope that firearms examiner has a, a, a love for trace evidence. This was a 22 rimfire bullet, all right, but it's got polyester fibers or fibers that the trace folks down the hall tell me are polyester. There's no gunshot residue on this person's head. But there's this pillow with some black sooty stuff on it in the trash can out at the end of the street. Now it all comes together. I asked Luke Haig about the history of shooting reconstructions and firearms forensics. Turns out it has a lot to do with that other notorious massacre on Valentine's Day, exactly 50 years before this case in 1929. Well, it really started when the first crime lab started which in the United States, which was after the St. Valentine's Day massacre in Chicago. A man named Goddard, Calvin Goddard, was an armor and a gun person, a person knowledgeable and interested in firearms. And he had gone to Europe and seen what they were doing in Europe by way of firearms identification. So he and a couple of other men put together basically the first crime lab at the Northwestern University Law School. It's almost hallowed ground to me. I taught there for a number of summers as a guest lecturer and went to the actual room where Goddard used to fire guns into a wastebasket full of cotton. But the reconstructive aspects were how many guns are we dealing with that murdered these gangsters and an innocent doctor who just happened to be walking along? Uh, what kind of guns, the Thompson submachine guns and shotguns, are the craters on the wall and a brick wall the consequence of direct strikes? Or are they bullets that have gone through someone, been destabilized, and made much lesser marks? Because now we can, if we know that, we can see where people had to be standing when they're shot. But imagine someone's down and executed. Bullet goes through them and makes a spall in the floor. Or we recover the bullet on the floor and we see it's got bone particles in it. And we've only got one person for whom a wound has gone through bone. That's a reconstructive phenomenon. So the bone particles in the bullet that's now hit the floor, this person who has a head wound was down on the floor when shot. So finding out what really happened to a top American diplomat in Afghanistan means applying a science that came of age when gangsters were gunned down in Al Capone's Chicago. But will this St. Valentine's Day symmetry amount to more than just a bleak coincidence? Can Luke Haig's specialty, shooting scene reconstruction, lead to answers? It is the ultimate goal of forensic science. What can we exclude? What did not happen? What could have happened? And best of all, what did happen out of the possible choices or Lawyers like to call them theories. I would call them accounts or hypotheses. What was the situation? What was the environment in that room when three riflemen came through the door from the corridor firing automatic assault rifles on full automatic and five riflemen from across the street were firing at a slightly oblique angle into the exterior wall? What would have been the impact? What would have been the environment in that small room? 
you may have to bleep this one, but you're in a kind of an oh shit situation because it looks like you have a potential for friendly fire if you're not coordinating. If you're on the same mission, if the people breaching the door and the people across the street are working for the same entity or under the same instructions, then really need to work out a plan where you guys across the street quit firing because we're going through the door. Otherwise, there's, there's an opportunity, to, especially for the guys going through the door, to get struck as soon as they're in harm's way, as soon as they get down a hallway long enough that bullets from across the street can reach them, or even ricocheted bullets coming off walls, coming in at an oblique angle. They're not going to go into the wall. They're going to ricochet off of it and continue in the same general direction. So the evidence points to a coordinated assault. We've heard about that in previous episodes. Americans in the hallway outside Room 117 saw Soviet KGB officers taking command of soldiers, soldiers wearing uniforms of the Afghan communist regime. At least one witness, a former CIA officer, says he believes the skill and discipline shown by the three men who stormed into the room means they were really Soviet soldiers from the USSR's southern republics. Is there any way to prove that? It would require some knowledge and understanding of the equipment with which the two groups were, were armed. If the Afghanis, for example, were getting ammunition from a, another country in the region, it's called a head stamp. It's a, the imprinted information that's on the head of a cartridge case that survives. Even the bullet design, the Iranians make the same ammunition, well, the same caliber and designation, but it's going to likely have different composition, a different core. There's a it's not truly a penetrator, but there's a steel core in AK-47 ammunition. The Russians versus the Bulgarians versus the Romanians, there will be differences there. But you would need to do one's homework. What were these? What was this organization deployed with? What kind of guns? There's a second caliber that was coming out about that time, the AK-74, not 47, 74, which shoots a 22 caliber bullet. That, I don't think at that time, the Soviets armed any of their allies with. It was strictly for Russian use only. There were so many AK-47s out there. It'd be a logistics problem. But there's a quick example. Choices of ammunition, but the background work has to be done. What did each group carry? Clues. And more clues. There are so many of them to consider. Like the five-man rifle team across the street. They fired in near-perfect unison with the three troops charging in from the hallway. The identity of the men who signaled that to happen may say something about who the soldiers really were. Former U.S. Consul Mike Malinowski and other American witnesses saw whose orders the troops followed. It began as soon as the Soviet officer waved his white handkerchief. You're saying a Soviet officer? Yes, directed the fire and directed the rushing of the hotel room. Sergei Bakhtarin. As I learned later, Sergei Bakhtarin, yes. Signaled the start of the Signaled assault. Signaled the start of the operation. We tracked down the now 86-year-old Sergei Bakhtarin in Moscow. He admitted supplying ammunition, but denied being in command. Understand. The order to shoot was given by the Afghans. The Afghans acted on their plan. But Bakhtarin's version of the assault doesn't stack up to testimonies of eyewitnesses, nor do the accounts published in Russia of other former Soviet spies. Clearly, the Russians' official story was contrived to point blame away from themselves, as evidenced by top-secret documents spirited out of the KGB's libraries by defector, Vasily Matrokin. 
the most extensive intelligence ever received from any source. That's how the FBI describes Matrokin's archive. In order to frustrate requests from the Americans to question the detained terrorist and hunt down the one who escaped, it was decided to shoot the one who had been detained and to shoot another prisoner pretending that he was the fourth terrorist. The story that all four kidnappers had been killed during the assault would be fed to the newspapers. During the night, both the doomed men were executed. The results of the investigation proved that the Americans were involved in the death of the ambassador. A newspaper article laid the blame on the Americans. The defector from the KGB, Vasily Mitrokhin, brought with him copies of cables, communications, and documents which demonstrate that there was a cold-blooded decision made on the part of the Soviets and their Afghan communist protégés to kill the third man who had been captured alive at the hotel, third kidnapper captured alive, seen by the Americans being beaten, but very much alive after the shooting was over, after Ambassador Dub's body was taken away. That man they next saw as a corpse on the morgue floor, along with the body of, a, of another man that nobody had ever seen. However, when put together with the two men they did see on the floor, dead in the hotel room, there were four corpses. The ambassador's driver reported that four assailants had kidnapped them and made him drive to the Hotel Kabul. Again, as an, as an investigator, what does that tell you about the Soviets and their motives? I'm not sure it tells me about them. I still think from the viewpoint of a lab person. I want the bullets from the dead guy at the morgue that you can't account for. I want the bullets from the ambassador and the bullets from the two men. What if the same gun was used to kill that man who wasn't in the room at the time that tells you a story right there. That somebody is off to the ambassador with a, let's say it's a, a Margolin. It's a 22 target pistol, 22 rimfire. And this has certain rifling characteristics. And the dead guy's been killed by the same Margolin, a classic Soviet target pistol. Doesn't sound like something that an Afghani cop would be carrying, does it? So, in addition to the ambassador's body, which was retrieved, clothed, and returned for a formal autopsy at Walter Reed Hospital in Washington, the bodies of the four men produced as the quote-unquote terrorists who killed the ambassador, those bodies could tell stories. Absolutely, the physical evidence in them, the nature of the wounds, any ballistic evidence, their clothing. I gave you one example earlier of one of them standing near a window or a door or being executed while he's on the floor. And of course, then there's the obvious question asked by the State Department, posed by the State Department's investigative report, which was, Oh, before this third man, who was seen alive, captive at the hotel, died, what was he able to tell you when you questioned him? And the Afghan regime refused to respond to that question. There was a living, breathing, speaking, thinking. That had a story to tell, which we'll never hear, other than what the physical evidence might have told us. And it doesn't look like we're going to see that either. Sadly, that's true. The bullet-riddled bodies of the dead suspects, the alleged kidnappers, are gone forever, along with so much other evidence. All on orders from Moscow, as revealed by Matrokin's evidence. The Soviets respected and feared Spike, and how he might turn the Afghan regime to the West. But now, with the official Russian and regime stories discredited, can Luke Haig's experience help overcome the loss of so much physical evidence? 
the American Foreign Service officers who were there, who retrieved Spike Dove's body from room 117, are haunted by the memory of what happened that day. And you get the sense that, of course, they yearn for photographs, for detailed measurements, the elements of physical evidence that we've discussed. As an investigator, what would you have looked for in that hotel room in the minutes and hours after the removal of Ambassador Dub's body? Well, I have to start with, I'm seldom fortunate to get to a crime scene. I'm a lab guy. I look at the static aftermath, but clearly securing it so nothing gets moved, the position of the victim's body, photographing that, I'm going to want the clothing, and of course the autopsy results and autopsy photographs. Even the beginning pathologist will take pictures of wounds before they're cleaned up and then after the blood's removed. The obvious things then are, of course, any ballistic evidence. If there are gunshot, apparent gunshot residues, this is still a failing in this country. Some of those powder particles of sooty material being saved is something I complain about, and some do collect it because, as uh, you will see if you do a little reading, there's at least six or seven physically different forms of smokeless gunpowder. So a 22 rimfire cartridge, for example, is going to have one physical form of propellant in it. The propellant in an AK round or in a Makarov, which is a common Soviet police pistol, those are going to be physically and chemically distinguishable, especially physically, the physical shape of these particles. So if we had bullets that went through the ambassador, but there's residue on the clothing or around the wound, clothing's great because that is going to be normally saved. Once again, it's called the scientific method. We can exclude these powder particles in his shirt, where there's a through and through wound, are not from the kind of ammunition and the cartridge cases on the floor, 22 spent cartridge cases. They are not from Makarov cartridges, but it does fit the Kalashnikov cartridges because we have some unfired cartridges or we have some residues from fired cartridges. So there's a what I've called a limited universe. We have three choices because we have three kinds of cartridge cases in the room, and uh, you can go on with hypothetical ideas from those two examples. There are no photographs of Spike's body in the chair or of the surrounding room. But Spike's body and clothing were recovered. Pathologists conducted an autopsy at Walter Reed Hospital in Washington, D.C. Yet the complete results of that examination have never been made public. Even after a year-long investigation by the U.S. State Department, Well, let's turn to the State Department's investigative report. You've had a chance to look at it, and there are some things that jumped out at you. How would you describe it? It's, it's 18 pages of mystery, is it not? Well, I went back through it uh, before we met today, and I've highlighted things on pages 2, 6, 8, 9, 11, 12, and then 13 and 14. So there's something on all of those pages, but the one that got my attention the most was references to an autopsy report. It's not the autopsy report, but it cites one. So that needs to be found along with the photographs. You think then it could be probative? Oh, absolutely. Even a bad autopsy report. And I say that because one of the things I've been so involved with for almost five years now is the ballistic evidence in the JFK matter. I've written five articles on that with my son, Mike. The autopsy was poorly done, substandard, but there's still useful information, even in the worst autopsy. 
It starts on page 13. Terrorists possessed at least two handguns. Right there. You've already told me the driver doesn't have a clear recollection of the type, but people who are in a world where there are a lot of firearms, and certainly that's one of them, I have high hopes that they recognize a, a Tokarev pistol, for example, a World War II Soviet pistol versus the current police pistol, a Makarov, versus a Smith & Wesson revolver. Even distinguishing a revolver with its cylinder is pretty basic. So that's, that's a starting point. You've told me we're not going to get very far with that. And then this quote, the ambassador died as a result of at least 10 wounds inflicted by small caliber weapons. Define small. I have a sense of what small means to me, but I don't know what this writer or this pathologist meant, if that's coming from a pathologist. And then I think the heart of the matter, 22 caliber. Well, there's 22 caliber rifles that are very energetic. And then there are 22s that are often the choice of assassins because they're not noisy, they're concealable. But the good news from a forensic standpoint is because of that, the bullets usually stay in the body. And there's some mention here of that powder burns. Well, this is jargon. They really aren't burns. So that worries me when I see that term. I suspect a forensic pathologist will not call them burns, but powder deposits or sooty deposits, or even what's called powder stippling, where the powder particles make little punctate injuries in living skin. Fired from point blank. Again, this is jargon. Point blank is a shooter's term, not a pathologist's term. It means you don't have to aim high or low. So point blank can be across the room. What this should say is contact to three inches. If and when you get the autopsy report, expect to see contact to three inches. Well, that's not from across the street. That's not from someone entering the door. That's someone that's right there with the ambassador who's put the gun to his or near his head and fired it. Then a wound to the right wrist, possibly either a 22 or a 25 caliber. Well, that's a strange comment because the only 25 caliber I'm aware of is, I'm, I'm laughing at myself because I can't think of a technically correct description, but a wimpy gun. Nobody uses a 25. The 25 auto was designed primarily for women to carry a little pistol for personal protection in their purse. It's a very small handgun, not terribly accurate, but... If you're my assailant and I've got this little 25 automatic down in my purse, it's, it's going to put a stop to your conduct. But it's not an assassin's gun ordinarily. It's certainly not a military cartridge. But there again, those bullets will generally stay in the body. How did this person arrive at this? Is it because of some measurement they made on a hole in clothing? Wouldn't be on skin because the pathologist will tell you you can't determine caliber from holes in skin. It's too elastic. It stretches and closes, whatever the bullet was. Could it be in skull bone? Now, that's a more interesting proposition because bullets going through the flat areas of the skull, if they don't expand, and that bullet won't, it will leave a hole that's usually slightly smaller than the bullet that made it. But to distinguish a .22 from a .25, good luck. So I'm fascinated by this comment. Who made this? What are their credentials? And how did they arrive at, at this? Is it just an estimate? Uh, or did they know something I'm, I'm missing here? It's not in this document. There has been no suggestion over the years that the autopsy performed on Spike's body was substandard or that the report has been concealed. It's just that efforts to solve the case went cold and quickly, very quickly. The Carter administration expressed outrage over the Soviets and Afghan regime's lethal mishandling of the kidnapping. But that outrage never led to a redoubling of investigative effort. To a top criminologist like Luke Haig, that leaves questions to be answered.
just as in other murder mysteries. If we're in a world where the autopsy, the official autopsy on the body of the President of the United States, of JFK, was conducted, as you say, in an ineffective manner or wanting inefficiency and expertise, the autopsy of an ambassador killed overseas might similarly be wanting. Is that what you're saying? Might be wanting, but there still may be a treasure trove of information there. Harkening back to Kennedy, it's not in dispute that there's an entry wound in the back of his head. So that's a starting point. The moment he comes out behind the Stemmons Freeway sign, uh, he's shot by a bullet. Doesn't answer the question about other bullets. With your, the ambassador here, somebody also has set some limits. The U.S. government has determined that no bullets recovered. Recovered? Where are they? The FBI's probably looked at these. CIA doesn't have a ballistics lab, as far as I know. We're capable of being fired from weapons identified by the DRA as pistol caliber 7.65. That's a 30 caliber pistol, not a 22, not a 25. 7.65 is a European designation for everything from a little 32 automatic. German officers, for example, carried, uh, it's more for ceremonial purposes, pistols in this caliber. The Russian World War II pistol, called a Tokarev, TT, is this caliber. It leaves a very unique cartridge case. The bullets are absolutely unique. I wouldn't expect them to stay in the body, though. They're full metal jacketed bullets. I worked, well, I've been doing this 53 years. I think I worked two cases where someone was shot with one of these. The bullets went right through them. So there's some really interesting things in the documents you brought me that deserve to be answered through discovery. What seems to be the case, Luke, is that the Americans were entirely dissatisfied, very skeptical about the list of weapons that the Afghan authorities claimed were found with the kidnappers. And even more deeply mystified then when they looked at the ambassador's bodies and the wounds. And you'll see, you'll note that the State Department investigative report does not state how many actual bullets, rounds, or bullet fragments were found in the ambassador's body. It's very unclear, isn't it? Yes, but if you can find the actual autopsy report, those answers should be there. Entry, entry exit, Entry, no exit, there's a bullet in there, or a fragmented bullet. As a professional forensics and firearms specialist, taken as a whole, when you look at the State Department report and you see the areas of interest and concern that you've identified in it, and you reflect that this was the product of a year-long investigation, hampered by the absence of physical evidence as it was, do you find it troubling that a year after the kidnapping and killing of, of a top American official that the case should be left in that state? I do, although being a private person for over 20 years now, I'm not that well connected with government operations. As I told you earlier, I'm often involved in the aftermath, but it's not this long later. It's two or three years later because there's a lawsuit. But someone has, has tapped into some information in these documents that must be out there autopsy report, FBI work. Maybe the clothing is in a dusty property room somewhere. Police agencies seldom throw things away. <laughs> I've worked cases where I'll ask the question, did anyone uh, look at the decedent's clothing? No. Where is it? We're not sure. Look at the property impound invoice. And quite often, clothing obtained by detective so-and-so at the hospital. Never went to the lab. It has a story to tell. One factor to keep in mind in all of this? Spike's kidnapping and killing took place during what was potentially the 20th century's most destructive conflict. 
a perpetual state of suspended total warfare, the entire world teetering on the edge of nuclear annihilation. In that sense, allowing a single murder case to go cold may have been viewed as preferable to forcing a showdown with America's most dangerous adversary. It wasn't a perfect environment, and seldom is, I guess, in police work. But when you add that huge geopolitical Cold War superpower rivalry to the top, it must be an awesome set of obstacles for any investigator to overcome. Well, that's why I'm still to this day absolutely enamored with what physical evidence can tell us. Because we can go back to these, these historical events where there's competing explanations and theories, and if we can find sufficient physical evidence, we can often rule out one explanation and either confirm or support the other. And from my standpoint, I really don't care where the, where the chips may fall. I just love problem solving. Some people like to climb mountains, it's problem solving. So is physical evidence. There is an effective investigative option available to us, even without much of the physical evidence. Luke Higgs' specialty is reconstructing shooting crimes. We've uncovered a good deal of evidence about what happened in Room 117. The firestorm unleashed on Spike and two of his captors in that cramped, confined space. What could reconstructing and reenacting the crime tell us? Well... If a person, a viewer, didn't already have an appreciation for what that must have looked like when the entry team, if that's what they really were, gained access, you certainly would after that because it's just going to be chaotic. When actually entering the room, it's just going to be smoke, haze, particles of rock, sheet rock, whatever the walls are made of, broken glass everywhere, cartridge cases from the entry team everywhere. But in the, in the final analysis, it doesn't strike me as a true rescue attempt. It's just kill everybody there. Not a true rescue attempt. Instead, an intention to just kill everybody there. Luke's impression is consistent with the evidence we've heard over these first four episodes of our podcast. The posturing by Russian and Afghan regime officials that the storming of Room 117 was intended to save Spike's life just doesn't wash with the facts. This was not an incidental death, much less an accidental one. It was homicide. Thankfully, new leads have opened up. As well, we've come up with new information, a good deal of which needs to be verified before we can share it. So although we've reached the end of the first stage of our investigation, we're now able to move on to a whole new level of inquiry. That's going to be complex and time-consuming. Months of legwork lie ahead. We hope you'll bear with us and keep an eye on skyreporter.com for updates on when we'll be back with further episodes. This cold case is thawing. It's emerging from the shadows draped over it long ago by ruthless, desperate men. But the truth they hope to conceal will emerge as we answer the question, Who murdered Spike Dubs? Mm -hmm.